As we open God's Word this morning, let's pray and ask for His Spirit to make His Word real to us. Father, we thank You that You are speaking God and that You speak to us, and we pray now that Your Spirit would be our teacher. We think of the fact that Jesus came to earth and He lived and He died and He was resurrected and He was ascended, and then He poured out His Spirit that You said the Spirit will glorify Jesus by taking from what is Jesus's and making it known to us. And in that immediate generation among the apostles, the Spirit did that by inspiring them, guiding them to pen the New Testament scriptures, to write the Word. And then he takes from what is yours and makes it known to us by our adhering and listening to your Word. So, Father, I pray for teachable spirits. I pray for myself, even as I am just simply a conduit bringing the word to your people this morning, that I would be listening to your word. I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. We are embarking this morning, so so we're putting Romans on the shelf for a few weeks as we look at these weeks between now and the Easter season during this time of year. We are looking at a series of sermons looking primarily at what I'm going to call snapshots or portraits of Jesus from Luke's gospel. And in those, we are, and this is what I titled the series, we are going to encounter the real Jesus. So I would ask you one more time to stand for the reading of God's word, which this morning we are looking at, like I said, we're using Luke and his gospel as our guide. So we're going to go through this morning the narrative of Jesus's temptation by Satan, by the devil in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're looking at Luke's gospel and these different uh, passages as a way to encounter the real Jesus, his person, his redemptive work leading up to that culminating Passion Week, Holy Week as it is called, culminating in his death and resurrection. And in this series, we're going to look at these various snapshots Luke gives us of Jesus in accounts like triumphing over the devil in the wilderness, 
and His glory revealed to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, looking at Jesus and the reality of judgment, and then in the parable of the prodigal son and the triumph of His grace, leading up to where He goes, entering His city, Jerusalem, where He will undergo His final cosmic battle with the powers of evil and the forces of darkness, leading to His ultimate victory in the cross, and on the resurrection where he ushers in and inaugurates the promise, which is our hope, anchoring our soul, the promise of a new world and a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to encounter Jesus, the real Jesus, in the multidimensionality of who he is and his vocation as Messiah. See, we have to have an accurate portrait of Jesus or Here's the only other option. We will create a Jesus in our own image. We will create a God after our own preferences, the God we like, the God who serves us and our preferences. We tend to craft a God of our creation to serve our own preferences. Tim Keller worded it this way. He offered this as what he called a thesis. He says, if you look today at most action movies, superhero movies, your Marvels and your Spider-Man and all of that kind of stuff, He says, and you look at their superheroes, the players and the characters, he says they're all one-dimensional. They're simple and one-dimensional. He says, as a result, there's no real engagement with them. They can't surprise you. He says, now today in culture, it is very vogue to say you believe in God. But the God that most people believe in is a God of their own choosing, a one-dimensional God, a cartoon God. He's either a benevolent grandfather a higher power, a spiritual universal force, or an unmoved mover. They pick an image of God and say, that's my God. He says, but when you do that, the result is no personal engagement, no encounter, no transformation, no change. He goes on to say the God of the Bible is complex. He is, at the same time, father, friend, king, Lover, judge, all at the same time. If you choose one over the other, one at the expense of any of the others, you lose personal engagement and you have no relationship. You don't have the biblical God. And yet, that is what I think most of us do. We want a one-dimensional God. We want a God who is either holy and powerful or loving and tender, but not holy love. So when we think of love, we only think of one dimension and we avoid personal engagement. We actually avoid meeting and knowing God. Luke is confronting us in his gospel with the complex, unpredictable, untame, multi-dimensional God. A God who is fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully human. The Lord of all peoples. Luke surprises us with this God. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you were surprised by God? Has God become overly predictable to you? You go through your routine, you go to church, you live a good moral life, you follow the Reformed tradition, you go to your Bible studies, you love your neighbor, you do what you say. When was the last time God got in your face and contradicted you? When God actually stirred you up and surprised you and you went, where did that, that's not a part of God that I knew. See, I bet you if we're married, your spouses surprise you. 
I bet you sometimes you surprise yourself. Where did that come from? I'll sometimes have an emotion come to me and go, wait a second, where in the world did that emotion come from? When was the last time God surprised you? One of the themes we're going to encounter as we look at Luke's gospel is, I'll give you the Latin for it, the theologians call it Christus Victor, or the victory of Christ. It is a prism, a way of looking at and understanding the person and the work, the ministry of Christ, from the vantage point of a cosmic battle between the forces of God, the kingdom of God, and the forces of darkness. In other words, it's a way of looking at all of Jesus' redemptive work as seen through the prism of spiritual warfare. It goes back to the Garden of Eden and Jesus as the solution. Why do you think he's called the second Adam? He's the solution to the problem of Adam and Eve. We're in the garden when the serpent, more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, had tempted and seduced Adam and Eve in a beautiful paradise paradise of a garden, not a wilderness, and was victorious over the first man and first women. The Gospels, if you think about it, present the public ministry of Jesus as bracketed by two things. Cosmic battle with Satan. Jesus' public ministry begins where? With his temptation in the wilderness. And ends where? With the cosmic battle on the cross. And Luke here is giving us the ultimate superhero. The one who's multidimensional. The one who's complex. See, we don't need a cartoon character who might inspire us, but will eventually crush us. We need a superhero who will fight our ultimate battle. We need a superhero who will fight for you. And Jesus is that superhero. So as we look at this text and look at the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, what kind of hero is Jesus? He is two things according to this text. He is a transcendent hero, and he is at the same time a very relatable hero. Think about it this way. Luke's presenting Jesus as fully God, transcendent, self-existent, without beginning, without end, outside the universe. And yet comes from heaven to earth and comes imminently and personally. His steadfast love endures forever. And he's a very human and very relatable hero. He is the hero we need. So a transcendent hero and a relatable hero. Let's look first at the transcendence of our hero. The opening verses of our text read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. What was he doing in the Jordan? He was baptized. Very important. And was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. So in other words, he gave up something he legitimately needed. He fasted during those 40 days. And of course the text says, so when they were ended, he was hungry. Think about this in the story that Luke's telling in Luke's narrative Because in his gospel account, he's just given us Jesus' baptism in chapter 3, where the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. A voice came from heaven declaring, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. And then the chapter ends with the genealogy Luke gives, where in verse 38, the end of the genealogy, how does he identify Jesus? He says, the son of Adam, the son of God. And now, so here's Jesus having 
been affirmed and anointed. You're the beloved son with whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit of God has anointed you, has equipped you for service. What is the very next thing that happens? The Spirit leads him out. The Spirit, all of this is done. Jesus is operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see the Trinity at work here in the economy of salvation fighting for you. The Spirit is the one who fills Jesus and leads him out. And leads him out where? To the wilderness. The complete opposite of the garden. If the garden, think about the descriptions of the garden in the book of Genesis. Every tree, every fruit, it was luscious, it was paradise. There was shalom, there was wholeness at every level of existence for Adam and Eve. The wilderness or the desert is just the opposite. The desert or the wilderness in the Bible is depicted as a place of nothingness, of loneliness, of dryness and aridness. Friends, to make this as practical as I can, the wilderness is the context for your and my life. We are living in the wilderness. That's why Peter in his letter say, as aliens and strangers, our hearts ache. See, a lot of the times we give in to escapism because we don't want to get into the thirsts and the aches and the longings of our heart. We were built for the garden. We ache for the garden. We don't want to face that. We don't want to face that we live in the wilderness. So what do we do? We escape. We suppress. We don't deal with the thirsts of our heart. Jesus is fighting for us because 40 days he was in the wilderness facing hunger, facing temptation, battling with the forces of evil. The wilderness is this place of nothingness. And as one writer put it, he says, Here with these temptations, we have the devil's slanderous accusatory, if you are the Son of God. Meaning, if you really are the anointed, affirmed one, the Messiah, the chosen one. If you really are. See the accusation, the doubt that he's planting? What is he doing here? This writer says he's trying to seduce Jesus into distrusting, forsaking, or misusing his divine sonship as the aim of of the temptations. And he says the temptation of Jesus follows closely, as I mentioned before, upon his baptism, where he's declared the beloved son by the father, and the genealogy, which ends with the words, the son of Adam, the son of God. The temptations show that Jesus is both God and man, tempted as we are in every way except without sin. He is the second Adam, obedient rather than transgressing, and he's also the true Israel, faithful in his calling. See, the transcendence of Jesus as our hero is seen here as Jesus is fulfilling his role as Messiah, beloved son. The climax, he's completing the story of the Old Testament. We hear echoes of Adam and Eve in the garden where the serpent whispered plausible lies and they gave in to them, but Jesus is succeeding. We also see the story of Israel recapitulated in the life of Jesus. Think about it. Israel did what? They came up out of Egypt through the Red Sea, symbolic of the waters of baptism, where God declared them to be his firstborn son. He affirmed them. He said, you're my chosen one, my treasured possession, where they were led by the cloud and the pillar of fire, where? Into the wilderness, 40 years of wilderness wanderings. When we read this account of Jesus, Luke wants us thinking back to the story of Israel. 
Their 40 years of wilderness wanderings where Israel grumbled and complained, where they gave in continuously to idolatry and constantly put God to the test. And as one commentator put it, now here's Jesus doing what? Coming through the waters of baptism, being declared the Son of God, the one through whom Israel's destiny is to be fulfilled. And he now faces the question, how is he to be Israel's representative, her rightful king? How can he deliver Israel and thereby the world from the grip of the enemy? How can he bring about the real liberation, not just from Rome, not just from earthly circumstances, but from the arch enemy, the devil himself? Luke wants us to see Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Friends, this is our transcendent hero, fighting our battle, not to inspire us, but to do it for us. I love the line out of the praise song in Christ alone, Jesus commands our destiny. No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Luke wants us to encounter Jesus as the Christus victor, the one who is victorious, led by the Spirit to face your and my ultimate foe, which is not how is life going, which is not am I going to have a good lunch today, which is not even some of the difficulties we face, what will the medical test look like, or what will my bank book or my 401k look like, but the ultimate foe the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. But there's more. See, Jesus is not only our transcendent hero. That would be great if he was, but at this point, you're probably thinking in the sermon, okay, wait a second, how does that relate to me? Well, he's also a relatable hero. Let's look at the temptations proper. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil then took him up and showed him, here's the second temptation, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, to you I will give all this authority and glory, for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will, if you will worship me. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle, the highest point of the temple, and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for here, for it is written. Notice what Satan's doing now. He's putting himself in the role of teacher. Since Jesus has quoted scripture twice to Satan, Satan, subtle as always, will now quote scripture incorrectly, of course, to Jesus, saying, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Friends, Jesus is a very human hero. This makes him very relatable. See, each of these temptations concern itself with a very human area of life. All of these are very human temptations. Every one of us needs and deals with issues of bread, which is bigger than just food and bread. It's the issue of fullness, the issue of satisfaction, the issue of where are you going to find satisfaction in life? 
the issue of authority and glory, the temptation to that is where are you going to find meaning and purpose and significance in life? Is it going to be in the worship? And notice worship and service of God always go together. Is your meaning and service going to be you are a servant in the hands of God implementing His kingdom? Or is it going to be serving your own interests? Or the issue of not trusting the goodness of God and so putting God to the test. So all of these issues, fullness, satisfaction, image, status, power, glory, all of these are very real human temptations that Jesus is facing while being hungry, while not eating, while being in the dryness, the aridness, the loneliness, no community, no fellowship. I want you to enter into... See, one of the ways I think Jesus surprises us, if you'll let him, is with his utter, brutal humanity. We know what it's like to feel lonely. We know what it's like to feel insignificant. We know what it's like to walk into a room and say, am I irrelevant? Do I even matter? We know what it's like to feel left out. We know what it's like to face anxiety and insecurity. Jesus is entering into the wilderness here. And notice he conquers every one of these temptations with the Word of God. Maybe the Word of God is more than just words on a page. Maybe it really is living and active. As long as we don't apply it like a magic wand, but really apply it to our lives. See, look at this. The first temptation, just to go through each of these quickly, the first temptation, commanding the stone to become bread. See, think about this. Jesus is a true man. He gets hungry. Food, bread is a legitimate thing. But as one commentator put it, this human eating must remain inside the boundaries of what it means to be a human being, namely to be the Son of God. See, in the case of Adam, it did not. He ate and he sinned. In the case of Israel in the wilderness, the people's lack of faith, their fear of not having sufficient food, caused them to murmur and rebel against God. Jesus did not succumb. He lives by the word of God. He's the man, the son of God incarnate, who is the word of God. Indeed, he is the bread of life from heaven who shall feed the people bread himself. See, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, here in this temptation. Deuteronomy is a book that the Israelites would have relied upon in their wilderness wanderings. Moses is taking the law that was given in the Ten Commandments. He's extrapolating them. He's preaching basically the book of Deuteronomy is a sermon to the people of God while they wander in the wilderness. So here's the very word of God. And as Bill read early. In the service, he said, and he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, let me try to be as practical as I can here. See, this is how Jesus, and thus how we, can handle testing and temptation in our lives. A couple things to recognize. First of all, notice this is not about self-hatred. When tempted, Jesus is not saying hate yourself. Temptation in and of itself is not sin. It's also not about rejecting your humanity, your creatureliness. See, part of Jesus being a relatable hero is that he is actually celebrating humanity. He's redeeming and restoring humanity to its true creaturely purpose when he says Man does not live by bread alone. The creature, 
The human does not live, does not function, does not rely upon bread alone, as important as physical needs are, but his true life is found living on the very word, the authority, the voice of God. So what he's saying here is our physical needs are important, but you're more than just your physical needs. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And lives by means, finds life. Finds all that you were meant to be as a human being. In other words, you won't be truly human living outside the word of God. Which begs the question for us. Here's the application question I'll give you with this temptation. Whose voice, whose word are you functionally listening to? Whose voice are you obeying? What word, what authority is controlling you? The issue is what do you live by? What fills you? In our wilderness world, this world of loneliness and emptiness and nothingness, what are you looking for for fullness? Are you living your life escaping? Is it about the next TV show? What you're going to watch on Netflix? Is it about social media or friends or popularity or when you're going to play the next whatever game or whatever it is that you're going on? See, have you ever thought about something? Have you ever thought about fasting, so to speak? See, fasting is just, what is fasting? Fasting is when we give up something legitimate, good, it's a created thing, you don't hate it, you don't, we celebrate our, but you give up something needful and good for a period of time in order to come into a little bit of a deeper experience with your reliance upon God. Whether it's food, as Jesus did, or maybe I'll challenge some of us, probably not all of us here in this room, but 11 o'clock service might be more appropriate on this one. Have you ever thought about fasting from social media for a period of time? Or fasting from your favorite activity for a period of time in order to more deeply experience, have real to your senses, your thirst, and your reliance upon God. Do you really believe the living and active word of God that says we don't live by bread alone? We don't live by all of these. See, we have so many creature comforts in America, and I'm not degrading them. They're wonderful blessings. But have we not been deluded and there's an edge off to our spiritual experience and our spiritual walk because maybe we've been deceived. Maybe there's a subtle devil. Maybe there really is cosmic warfare that is going on that will lead us away that maybe we think we do live by bread alone. And we get enough when we get 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. And maybe you're a real spiritual one and you read the Spruce Creek Bible reading plan, so you get another 15 minutes each day. You ever think about things from the Scripture? See, I ponder and I kind of go, what in the world sometimes? This is letting the Scripture surprise us sometimes. You read in the early chapters of Genesis, Enoch walked with God. And he was taken away. He didn't die the normal death. Everybody else did. What does it mean to walk with God, to live that closely with God? Second temptation has to do with the issue of authority and glory. Now, see, the devil cannot deliver what he promises. He claims authority and glory. And Jesus does say, I'm quoting here out of John 12, verse 31. Jesus does say, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world. So we call Satan in a limited, under the sovereignty of God's sense, he does say he's the ruler of this world. So the devil is giving, given a limited glory and authority over the fallen world, 
a world whose glory is doomed, a world that Isaiah pronounced when he said, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? Cry, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And Jesus faces this temptation, quoting out of Deuteronomy 6, saying, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. See, one of the things we have to recognize about God is he does love to give glory. But when we worship and serve, and those two always go together, any other God, what the Bible calls idolatry, we are trying to be like God. Sound like the Garden of Eden again? Hear these echoes of Adam and Eve all over this passage? We usurp his authority. We're deceived, thinking instead of living... These temptations, by the way, tend to fold in and parallel with each other. Instead of living by bread alone, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, we feel like that word's not good enough. We better seek a glory and authority of our own. We better seek a power and a control of our own. And we're deceived trying to have a greater glory, a greater authority, and it leaves us even more empty and even more insignificant. Finally, the third temptation. And the third temptation is different than the other two, especially in the sense of its location. Notice here, the devil takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And as one writer said, the location of this last temptation in Jerusalem suggests an allusion to the passion, because we're now in Jerusalem. From this moment on, Jesus' life will be a journey to Jerusalem, where he will again face the temptation to abandon his vocation as Messiah and Son of God. I want you to think of the overall story, the arc of the Bible, for a second. From a garden to a wilderness, back to a garden in the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane again, where Jesus once again is preparing to face cosmic warfare. Remember I said his public ministry is bracketed, facing the devil in the wilderness and facing the devil again as he prepares to go on the cross. And he prays in Luke chapter 22, Father, if you are willing. Remember Luke goes on to say he is actually at this point sweating drops of blood. His agony is so profound. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here's where Jesus goes from a relatable hero to something that is in one sense unrelatable and unrepeatable. Because here, see, it's relatable, and he's being tempted in areas we're tempted in. Satisfaction, fullness, power, glory, image, control, comfort. But here, as one writer put it, he says, now this is not relatable or repeatable because their authority and glory will come not by a miraculous rescue at the temple in Jerusalem or from the cross at Calvary, but by bitter abandonment and rejection and a shameful death. Authority and glory came through service, suffering, and death. The temptation of Jesus by the devil foreshadows the conflict of the passion and Jesus' victory on the cross. Already the triumph is being anticipated, although it comes in a way one might not expect. 
Jesus' battle and complete victory over the devil and the passion and resurrection is one of the great themes of his life, giving rise to the Christus Victor expression of the gospel. But the devil is subtle, and he sees that his chance for victory lies in tempting Jesus to bypass the cross and reach for glory now. Each temptation attempts this. Fill your belly now, if you're really the Son of God. Worship me and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours now. Throw yourself down from the temple and all will see right now this tremendous display of your glory and your Father, if you are the Son of God, rescuing you. Had Jesus succumbed to any of these temptations, he would have reversed the order of kingdom, placing glory before suffering. The entire rhythm of his life was just the opposite, to show that suffering must, will, and does precede glory. It did for Jesus, and it does for us. I once heard Larry Crabb in a seminar he was giving, saying, we all agree that the prosperity gospel is wrong. But he says, the heart of the prosperity gospel, why it's wrong is it takes a kernel of truth. We are promised heaven. See, that's truth. We are promised. Wilderness leads to where? Promised land. Suffering leads to where? Glory. The prosperity gospel takes that kernel of truth Heaven, and what's heretical about it, is it demands heaven now. I must have full satisfaction right this minute. That's where instant gratification comes from. I must have full significance, complete significance, complete fullness, complete relevance and meaning, complete power and glory. I must have it now. Jesus was tempted to reverse, just as what this commentator is saying, to bypass the cross, to bypass the suffering, and have the glory now. And when we are tempted, that's what we're tempted by. Fill yourself now. Find glory now. Friends, man does not live this current life by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Father, I pray that maybe you've surprised a couple of us here this morning. Who knows? I pray, Father, that you've met us in your word. I pray, Father, that you would teach us to face temptation with the prevailing, living, active word of God, that this would be a practical passage that Jesus promises to fight for us, that we will count on that, count on your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.